That being said, it's an exciting Mother's Day today as we start a new series, a new uh, book. Uh, We're in the book of John, the Gospel of John, the fourth gospel. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. If you want to go ahead and turn there, it's after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, just as I was praying over the last uh, many months of what our next series might be, um, you know, I kind of went back and forth. Maybe we'll go to, um, maybe we'll go to Genesis, you know, Um, and just the more I prayed, I felt like the Lord would have us go to a gospel and uh, had the gospel of John on my heart. I actually have never taught through the Gospel of John. I've taught through the New Testament uh, multiple times, but in that teaching, uh, I always started with a different Gospel. And so uh, John uh, will be an exciting one for me to go through. Um, You know, the the Gospel of John is very special. It's very rich. It's very deep. Um, You know, I had a friend that taught it for a college ministry, and I think it took him four years to teach through. And that's not exactly the pace that I'm planning on taking, although the more I've studied just to get through uh, the verse 14 verses today, we may only make it through five. So I'm a bit sympathetic to that four-year plan. Um, I, since high school, have uh, had in my possession little thin gospel tracts that were the book of John uh, designed to hand out to people in evangelism. The front of these tracks uh, say living water. And so often in my evangelism, as I have uh, shared the gospel with people, I've encouraged them, you know, why don't you grab a Bible and just go read the book of John and ask Jesus uh, to reveal himself to you in your reading of it, believing that he will do just that, as we'll see in just a minute, the whole point and thrust and key of John is so that people might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world, and that believing uh, they might have life in his name. Uh, the book of John is, is, you know, John, there's something about him. You read the letters of John, you read the revelation of John that we just finished up last week, and, you know, he's an easy read. You know, and he's an easy memorize. And I'd encourage you to be finding scriptures as we go through to implant in your memory um, and to uh, really uh, let them be those well-driven nails in your life. Uh, The love of Jesus is seen paramount in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is the fourth section of what some have called the fourfold gospel with four different voices giving different perspectives on the life and ministry and um, attributes of who Jesus is. Christian writers as early as Origen in 185 AD understood that there are not really four gospels, but there is one for gospel being shown in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, For the most part, uh, the gospels are known as one 
real book. The book was not a scroll, but was actually four different books bound like a book uh, as early as the first century, glued together, bound together, known as a codex, um, a codex with separate uh, leaves within it, just like our Bible today. And it was known simply as the gospel, containing these four canonical gospels known to be authoritative for spirituality, for life, uh, for practice. And then it was later that they were divided into four uh, parts thought to be according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, and according to uh, John. Um, the Gospel of John was uh, probably the last of these that was written, and it was written in view of what the previous three had already written about Jesus. And that's why John's account is so much different than the other three. He's written with the awareness that what they've already said has already been said. Uh, he's coming at it with a different purpose in writing it. We'll see that in just a second. And, um, and he's able, as the end of the Gospel of John says, to include some, some different things. And he just is aware that, you know what, if you had all the books in the world to write about Jesus in, you'd never be able to write about all the fantastic and wonderful things that he said and did in his life uh, here on earth. Uh, John is different than what are called the synoptic gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar in many of the stories that they tell, in the way that they uh, tell them. Uh, they include things such as Jesus' birth, Jesus' baptism, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, his confrontation with demons, his teaching in parables, the Last Supper, his agony in Gethsemane, and his ascension. And uh, yet John doesn't have those accounts in his version. Uh, he includes a fair amount that those synoptic gospels make no mention. Some of these things are uh, the miracles, uh, like the transformation of water into wine. John's gospel is the one that has that. He has the dialogue with Nicodemus about what must he do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says you must be born again. It's John's gospel that says that. He has the resurrection of Lazarus as an account. Uh, he's frequently referring to Jesus' time in Jerusalem. In fact, that tends to be more the aim rather than as the other synoptic gospels. It was Jesus' time in Galilee that is paramount. Uh, there are extended dialogues in the temple and various synagogues that are referenced in John and some different private instruction to his disciples uh, that uh, we see exclusively in this fourth gospel. Uh, each of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, emphasizes a different origin of Jesus. When you begin the gospels, you might begin Matthew, and you'll see that Matthew uh, writes that Jesus came from Abraham through the line of D David 
demonstrating that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. Whereas Mark shows that Jesus came from Nazareth, uh, and that emphasizes that Jesus is a servant. Luke goes all the way back, a long ways back in the genealogy line, to the first man, Adam. And of course, Luke has the purpose of showing that Jesus was fully man, emphasizing the humanity of Jesus. And now we have John, whose theme is to show that Jesus is God, the Son of God. And so he goes back even further than Adam. He goes back to the beginning. And we're going to see as we get into the first verse how far back in the beginning that actually is. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the synoptic gospels, which means see together. And here we have the fourth gospel, um, which is just coming from a different perspective and a different purpose. The gospel of John is a beloved gospel. John would even refer to himself as the disciple that Jesus loves. And, uh, and I think that you, you feel that uh, as you read this. Um, some have said the gospel of John is a paradoxical combination of of both simplicity and depth. It's been called a pool in which a child may wade and an elephant may swim. And that's really how I felt as I began studying this week. <clears throat> you know, you, you start out and there's just some, some simple things and some, some good things that even a, either a non-believer who's seeking or, an unbe- or, a, or a new believer who's growing, they can wait and they begin to drink or they see that it would satisfy. Uh, and then as the deep theologians, I, I got some commentaries that I thought would be some easy helps this week and they're so deep um, and, uh, and even hard to <clears throat> spend time in because they're so long. Uh, Erdman wrote, it's stories, the stories of John are so simple that even a child will love them, but its statements are so profound that no philosopher can fathom them. And so we're going to see um, the depth and the simplicity all at the same time. Uh, You might in your notes note that the key verse of the book of John, and I love key verses in the Bible because they help us keep in mind the context of the book. A lot of these key verses will just full on come out and say to you the reason why something was written. And then that helps you as you're reading to remember not to get off on certain rabbit trails that the author had no intention of of even getting into uh, as he wrote it. And the key verse, which is the clear and distinct thesis of the book, is found at the end of the book in John chapter 20. Verse 31, and here's what it says, that these were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so we can summarize John's thesis in one word, and that is believe, believe. There are statements about 
belief nearly a hundred times in the gospel of John. Contemporary spirituality trumpets not belief in an object or in a person, but rather belief in belief. Uh, You might think of the George Michael song that uh, in a very cool hip way with a cross earring in his ear, he sings that you got to have faith to faith to faith. You got to have faith. But he doesn't get into what that faith should be in. We need to believe in the object and the person of Jesus, the Gospel of John tells us, who he is and what he's done. And we need to completely receive that into ourselves to be our absolute hope and trust, our hope of rescue, our hope for salvation, our hope for life and for peace. And yet the cultures that we live in and many of the famous people within it say, no, you're good if you just believe in something. Uh, Or rather, if you just have belief, if you have faith. And yet the faith must be in something. And John here identifies Jesus as the Christ, um, that he is the Messiah, that he's the one who will fulfill all of the promises of God in the Old Testament. We would also believe in Jesus as not only being the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the fulfillment of the promises, but also believe in him as, and this is from 2031, the Son of God. And we're going to see through our Gospel of John, that means he is God. Uh, He's not God the Father. He's not God the Holy Spirit. He's God the Son. Um, Only someone who is divine could do all that God promised in the Old Testament. Only someone who is divine could be trusted with all of the power and the authority that's promised to the Messiah. Only someone divine could be the perfect payment for our sin, the perfect sacrifice to atone for the wickedness of the world and if jesus were not divine he could not be the fulfillment of all the promises that god made to believe in jesus as the christ the son of god is more than just a mere intellectual adherence to a set of facts about the life of christ What it is, is it requires trusting our whole self, everything we are, into what Jesus said, who he said he was, and what he was sent to accomplish. And so, believing in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, gives us life, gives us life in his name. So not just believing in whatever, I all morning have had the kind of the final celebratory song of Shrek in my mind. And you've got Donkey dancing around, right? And he has this great solo where he just says, I believe, 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 I believe. He's emphasizing it. He's repeating it. And the whole time you're sitting there wondering, what do you believe in? I mean, it was a great story about ogres and fairy tale lands, but what do you even believe in here? So if you've got to have faith, faith, or you believe, 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 
What do you believe in? And I wonder, what do you believe in? You know, <clears throat> the book of James says that, that you believe in God. Well, good job there, because even the demons believe, and it hasn't changed them. They even tremble in God, but it hasn't transformed their life. And so as we come to the Gospel of John, I would ask you, and I wonder, what is your belief? And to whom is your belief? And what is your belief in? And I hope that in this series, and even today, that it would be in Jesus, the fulfillment of the promises of God for, as we'll see in chapter 1, light and life, and that you would have life in His name. There's an old story of Charles Blondin, who was a famous tightrope walker uh, back in the early 1900s. He would tightrope the 1,100 feet over the Niagara Falls on a little three-inch rope. And he would do all kinds of tricks. He would take wheelbarrows over. He would uh, scramble an omelet as he's going across and lower the omelet to a boat below. Um, and, uh, and as he got across, there's two different stories that I've heard. One is that at one point he uh, had a wheelbarrow and he asked the crowd who was beginning to really believe in him uh, if they thought he could take a wheelbarrow over. And one man at the, be- at the front of the crowd was very emphatic that you totally can do it and you totally should do it. And Blondin is known to have asked the man, if you really believe that I can do it, get in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> And I don't believe that the man did it. Then another story is that he asked if the crowd thought he could carry a man on his back across the rope, and nobody would do it uh, until finally a man in the crowd who actually was part of Blondin's staff said, I'll do it. At this point in my life, I've staked everything in this business and in your talents that I should totally trust that you could get me across the Niagara Falls. And so the question today for you is, uh, if you believe in Jesus, get in the wheelbarrow. Are you willing to get in the wheelbarrow? Are you willing to get on his back? Are you willing to, to completely rest your life, your hope, your future in who Jesus is and who he says that he is? And we pray that today would even be the day that you put your trust, you put your hope, you put your weight into Jesus in his life, in his light. And so let's get into the text. That's just a tiny introduction. Um, So much could be said, uh, and I'm sure every week we might have something new about the book of John. Uh, But let's look at verse 1, where it begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so we have this, in the beginning, or this, N-R-K, Ark, Architect, the beginning, the design time. This first cause moment uh, at the origin, in the beginning, the first three words of the Gospel of John echo the first three words of what? Genesis, right? Uh, The first three words of the Bible. And the reason that John is doing this, and, you know, I was thinking this week how Wonderful it is that, you know, you got guys like John that are writing books now. He's a fisherman. And at this point in his life, one of the last uh, gospels, the last gospel to be written, one of the last books to be written. At this point, 
You know, he went from being a fisherman to being uh, a writer of the gospel of John uh, and many letters in the book of Revelation. You got Peter, old foot in the mouth Peter, and he's got books that he's written. I, I don't know if I could ever write a book. I, I wonder. And yet here you have John very tactfully writing a book and starting it uh, with his, uh, what we've been learning in the homeschool community as um, a topic and a clincher. You know, and the topic is your first sentence uh, of your book or your key idea. And then the clincher at the end of the book uh, reflects or repeats two to three words from your key idea. And so th- there's something very organized and structured about the topic here. Because he right away wants it to be known that uh, the someone who's being written about was there at the beginning. Okay, uh, So there at the beginning... Uh, John is connecting Jesus Christ with creation. He's claiming that Jesus existed before the creation of the heavens, the earth, the universe. That Jesus existed before the world began, before there was even time. And if we were to hit the rewind button, and I sometimes wish that there were cameras on every corner of the world throughout human history so that we could go back and witness some of the amazing events that have taken place. If we were to hit the rewind button of history, we could take it back to the very beginning with the beginning of the tape when God created the world out of nothing and we are going to find that Jesus was there. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You'll notice there that Genesis 1-1 contains no hint of the creation of God. Where did God come from? Well, it's assumed and it's known he was already there at that point. And in John 1-1, there is no hint of creation of Jesus because he's God, because he's creator. So this is what sets Jesus apart from other so-called gods with a lowercase G, gods who were made by human hands and who were invented by human minds. Jesus always existed. He's of the same character and quality of God. Everything that can be said about Jesus, uh, or rather everything that can be said about God, can be said about Jesus Christ. And we call this in biblical theology... The Trinity, three in one, triune, okay? Uh, It's the understanding that there is one God, but that the one God exists in three persons that from the beginning of church history have been known as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, There is unity within the Trinity, They are one God, but they are not each other. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit, you know, you can go on and on forever with those multiples. Uh, There's distinction in persons and personality, but there is one Godhead. It's a bit of a mystery. Not saying it's easy to wrap your mind around, and yet... Biblically, since the foundation of the church, it's been understood that there's one God who exists in three 
persons. Right now we're going through a catechism. We're teaching our children this. How many gods are there? Titus, there's one God, you know. And, and how many persons does he exist, Russell? He exists as three persons. Oh, Laney, by the way, Russell's voice was starting to change. Uh, Laney, who are they? You know, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Okay, this is, this is early church history that has been known. And so in verse 1, we find this precisely, articulately worded statement about Jesus that leads us to only one conclusion. Jesus is God. As Athanasius, the early church father, said, there never was when he wasn't, right? There never was when he wasn't. I was trying to figure out a sermon title for the day, and as many that I've read have been something about the pre-existent Christ. And that's just a little bit dull for me. And so I had to sort of steal from someone else uh, an idea, and that was, the always wasness of Jesus. The always wasness of Jesus. Because there never was when he wasn't. Seems like there should be a really cool tongue twister with that. And there may even be a was or the was, a was or the was, all right? Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. I don't know if we have this for you in the screen, but it says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So in the beginning is how we get into this. We're getting into it. We're easing into it. If you read the first five verses plus verse 14, uh, you can just kind of drop the bomb. But we're easing into it that in the beginning, and he's getting into it, it's going to be Jesus. In the beginning was the word. Okay, in the beginning was the word. In urban dictionary lingo, there's a lot of, uh, you know, words we use today, just dropping the word word. Word means truth. Uh, word uh, or O word means O truth. Uh, you know, uh, and here we have in the beginning was the word and Many of you probably know from just a few Bible studies you've been in, it's from the Greek word logos, okay? In the beginning was the logos, all right? Now, that can mean the word referring to a statement or a speech, the gospel, some sort of treatise or account, but how it's referring in this case speaks of reason. So in the beginning was the reason. It translates the ancient Greek word logos um, and the idea of logos into word. Now, logos had deep and rich roots in the Greek and in the Hebrew. Now, for us, it's, it's and I'm going to read it in a second, it's, it's oddly translated. It doesn't make as much sense to us. In the beginning was the word. That's how it's translated into English and and it's just a little strange. It's not really how we talk in English. But to the Greek and the Hebrew, uh, they totally got it. F.F. Um, F. Bruce has been one of the deep wells that I've been trying to plunge this week. 
And he writes, no doubt the English term word is an inadequate rendering of the Greek logos, but it would be difficult to find one less inadequate. It's really the best translation for us is what he's getting at. Um, In a version or commentary intended for scholars, you might just leave it as logos, right? The scholars would get it, right? Um, But it would not really do to retain that logos for the general reader like you and I. Uh, James Moffat has a respected translation that begins this verse with the statement, the logos existed in the very beginning. And it's justified by the observation that logos is a little bit less misleading than word to the modern reader. Listen to this from Bruce. But if logos is not completely meaningless to an ordinary reader, it probably suggests something like reason. In the beginning was the reason. And that is a little bit more misleading than word. Okay, so all that to say, it's a tough thing to translate to English, but logos is good if you've got some idea that it's got this this root of the meaning or the reason. J.B. Phillips, in his uh, more modern translation from the 1940s, renders it, at the beginning, God expressed himself, and then he kind of safeguards the personal quality that John the Evangelist assigns to the divine self-expression by continuing, J.B. Phillips, that personal expression, that word was with God. Now, J.B. Phillips agrees that his rendering is not 100% accurate, and he says this, that a number of his readers have told him that it does convey some positive meaning to them, whereas they find the rendering word a bit ambiguous. It's a bit mysterious to us. Now, maybe your brain is beginning to melt, and we're in the first couple words of the Gospel of John I don't blame you. Mine is too, as I've been studying for this. Um, One translation says, in the beginning was the deed or the action. And while that's not the whole meaning, it's part of it. It's the word in action. And that begins to do it a little bit of justice. Now, Jewish rabbis often referred to God, especially in his more personal aspects, as his word. When Moses would bring the people to the camp to meet God, uh, it says Moses brought people out of the camp to meet the word of God. Uh, So it refers to God himself, even in the book of Exodus, okay? Uh, The Greek philosophers saw the logos as the power that puts sense into the world, making the world orderly, Instead of chaos, okay? So uh, in the beginning, if you were a Greek, you'd be reading this. In the beginning was the power that puts sense into the world, uh, making it orderly, bringing it out of chaos. The Greeks saw the Logos as the ultimate reason that controlled all things. So when John opens up with this, he's helping the Jews and he's helping the Greeks 
realize that for centuries you've been talking, thinking, and writing about the Word, the Logos. Now I will tell you who He is. Who's the reason? Who's the ultimate reason? And, uh, and usually they would understand through that word Logos. Morris writes, John was using a term which, with various shades of meaning, was in common use everywhere. He could reckon on all men catching his essential meaning. Uh, they are picking up what he's laying down, if you will. All right. Um, so in the beginning was the word, was the ultimate reason. In the beginning was this one who, as it's going to say, was with God. So we're pulling verse 1 apart right now. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now, this, you might seem like this is a bit redundant, because he's going to go on to say, and the Word was God. Why, why all the W's here? Word was with God, Word was God. What's the point? Every little parsing of this is extremely important in Christian theology and John, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, is laying it down for us so that we can comprehend, okay? Um, so, the Word was with God. Now, what you're going to want to underline or really take note of is that word with, okay? That word with is more important than you might think. The word in the original Greek speaks of being towards someone, having regard for someone, okay? Um, being with someone. And that preposition implies interaction and association. And what that word with does is it separates personalities, okay? What I'm getting at is that the Word was not God the Father, okay? The Word that John is going to take the next 20 chapters talking about is Jesus. And since the beginning, before the beginning, the Word Jesus, the ultimate reason Jesus was with God, okay? He had interaction with the Father. He is God and he's with God, there are different personalities involved in the Godhead. Chrysostom said, not in God, but with God, as a person is with a person eternally. We see this in John 17, 5, in the great high priestly prayer of Jesus, when he says, now Father... Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you, not in you, and we're just, uh, we're the same thing, I am the Father, no, separate, God the Father, God the Son, have been together since before forever, and they had glory together with each other, and John says it with uh, before the world was, okay? So, hope you underline the word with, because it's really important in Christian theology. In the beginning was the logos, was the word, okay? 
and the word, this ultimate reason. We know he's Jesus in just a little bit. We're going to see it. Jesus was with, had fellowship with uh, the Father since the beginning. Okay? Then we have this next phrase that's also deep and intense. And, it's, and it has this special preposition, uh, was. Okay? And the word was God. So with God and was God. It speaks of being identical to God, existing as and representing God. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce says that the prologue is composed in rhythmical prose. In other words, you can read it and it, you could write a rap about it. You know, uh, It helps you memorize it. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God, right? You're starting to kind of pick up on that rhythmical prose. Um, It's interesting that the New American Standard Bible Dictionary uses this word was and defines it as literally, I exist and I am. So in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word says I exist And I am God. I'm not the Father, but I am God. Um, I'm part of the unity of the Godhead. Now, a little bit of cultural and uh, felt need here in what we deal with in our culture of the day is that the Jehovah's Witness cult, who do not believe that Jesus is God, um, have a translation of the Bible called the New World Translation. And it messes with the Greek and has added a tiny little singular letter before the word God here. So that they translate it, the word was a God, lowercase g. Okay, And so by adding the little word a, they're not trying to be Canadian a, What they're trying to do is make a statement that Jesus is something less than fully God. He may be a God in some sense, lowercase g, but he may be one of many gods, but he is not the true God. The Watchtower, which is the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses um, uh, magazine, Uh, uses the New World Translation and translates this line quite differently. The Jehovah's Witnesses read it that it was a God. So I'm I'm quoting David Guzik in that. It's a bit repetitive. But their translation is used to deny and to mislead towards a different way. Uh, The claim of the Watchtower defending their translation says that before God is used here, there's no article, okay? Uh, It should say something like the God, if Jesus was the God. And so uh, because there's no article there, we're going to correct it to say a God, okay? Now, in answer to that approach, uh, in their Greek grammar and translation, we can refer to the multitudes of other times where they use the word God in their translation without the article. And so they have only changed it when it suits their purposes. It's just fine everywhere else, 
that God is used without an article referring to God, but they don't like it here. They're changing it. They're manipulating it to suit their purpose. Uh, in that main resource, the Watchtower, uh, it's establishing their claim in a, uh, I should say they use a resource called the Kingdom Interlinear. They use that to establish their claim. They quote two well-known Greek authors to make them appear to agree with their translation. Uh, they both are misquoted in their book, The Kingdom Linear. One of them, Dr. Manti, uh, <clears throat> writing The Watchtower, demanded that his name be removed from their book. Uh, another quote-unquote scholar whom The Watchtower refers to um, in their book, The Word, Who Was He? Uh, his name is Johannes Graber, who is an occultic practicing spiritist not a Greek scholar, and not a scholar of biblical Greek. I know that that was a lot. Uh, let me break it down. Basically, when they defend their use and their translating, um, it either only suits their purposes and they're not consistent with it in the rest of the scripture. And the two authorities that they quote as Greek scholars, either one have said, you're misquoting me and I want to be removed from, from your book, or this guy's a cultist in the first place and is not a biblical scholar, okay? Uh, the true and real Greek scholars uh, do not recognize the Jehovah's Witnesses translation. Okay, let me give you a few. Jo Dr. Julius R. Manti says, a grossly misleading translation. It is neither scholarly nor reasonable to translate John 1.1 that the word was a God. But of all the scholars in the world, so far we know none have translated this verse the way that the Jehovah's Witnesses have done. Dr. F.F. F. Bruce, who I've been reading, says, much is made by Aryan amateur grammarians of the omission of the de definite article with God in the phrase, and the word was God. Such an omission is common with nouns in a predicate construction. A God would be totally indefensible. Okay, so in real Greek scholarship, to add the word A is indefensible. Okay, uh, Dr. Charles L. Feinberg says, I can assure you that the rendering which the Jehovah's Witnesses give John 1.1 is not held by any reputable Greek scholar. Dr. Paul Kaufman, the Jehovah's Witness people evidence an abysmal ignorance of the basic tenets of Greek grammar in their mistranslation of John 1.1. Dr. William Barclay, my last one, the deliberate distortion of truth by this sect is seen in their New Testament translation. John 1.1 is translated, the word was a God, a translation which is grammatically impossible. It is abundantly clear that a sect which can translate the New Testament like that is intellectually dishonest, Okay. So um, not trying to bash on the Jehovah's Witnesses. They are sincere, but they're sincerely wrong, and they have been misled by occultic leaders who have an agenda and have twisted the word of God. Um, and you can see that from the beginning in the 1800s when they were founded by Charles Russell. Rather, you go to the scripture and you see other statements that back up John 1.1, like Revelation 19.13. 
that Jesus was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So he is the Word of God, and he is God. John 1.14, we're going to see it um, later on in our study. I don't think we'll get there today. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Word who was in the beginning, the ultimate reason, the Word who was with God, uh, separate personalities, then God the Father, um, he became flesh. He dwelt among us. It's going to be a great study when we get to that as well. Philippians 2.6 says that Jesus was in the form of God. He was being in the form of God and did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Who should consider it robbery to say that he's equal with God? Someone who's not God. You're robbing a title that does not belong to you. But Jesus, there's nothing scandalous in what he's doing when he claims to be God and when he's in the form of God because he is God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, speaking of Jesus, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down in the right hand of the majesty on high. So, Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the express image of the Father's person. He's the representation. He's the exact representation of God. In 1 John 5.20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ, This is the true God and eternal life. So Jesus is not the Father. He's distinct in that he is the Son. This is how he has chosen to reveal himself to us. God has chosen to reveal himself as a Father. The second person has chosen to be revealed as uh, the Son. The third person of the Trinity has not been chosen to be revealed as the daughter or something else. Uh, They reveal and give us understanding of him as the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. Um, but in the Son's case, First John 5.20 says, um, His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God. This is the true God in eternal life. So, as Alistair Begg, whom I stole my sermon title today, said, He always was, and in His always wasness, He always was God. Jesus was from the beginning he always was and in his state of always wasness he always was god bruce says john intends that the whole of his gospel shall be read in light of this verse so everything that you read from this point on everything from the miracles the uh the turning of water into wine the uh turning of the tables in the temple the healing of lazarus Um, the claiming to be a water that quenches thirst that you would never need to drink again. How can a man have the audacity to make claims like this? Well, he makes these claims and he has the audacity to turn tables in the temple because he's God. He has the right to do so. Uh, He has the authority to do so. Okay? So, you practically have verse 1 memorized by this point with its rhythmic prose. And now we're moving on to verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Very simple verse. 
And it's that word with again. He was in the very beginning in Arche at the time of architecture with God. He's not the father, but he's God. He was with God the father in the beginning. No matter how far back we may try to push our imagination, we can never reach a point at which we could say of the divine word as the Arian heretic said, Arius, uh, the ancient Jehovah's Witness. uh, He said, there was once when he was not. There never was this time in history. Okay? He always was. Okay? And moving on, it says in verse 3, all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Okay? Now, this rendering of this verse is a little bit clumsy. It almost feels silly to say it. All things were made through him, and without him, there was nothing that was made that was made. Okay? It's a little bit awkward. It's a little bit, bit clumsy. It's a bit excessively literal. But why would John the Apostle be excessively literal in making this point? Probably because there were people that were problems. Okay, There were occult leaders. Satan has an agenda to deceive people and to get them to not believe that Jesus is the Son of God so that they may not have life in his name. And so John is excessively literal, and that is designed to make John's point clear. God is the creator. His word is the agent. And this creative agency is ascribed as the pre-existing Christ. B.M. Medsker says, despite valiant attempts of commentators to bring sense out of how this verse is constructed, it remains intolerably clumsy and opaque. I don't even know if I'm saying opaque, right? Opaque, opaque. You do the math. Okay, thank you. Johnny's over there. Opaque. Right, he went to college, you guys. Um, So all things were made through him. All is the word panta, and it means everything. Any total kind of thing. Well, what about, oh, yes. And how about, mm, yes, okay. Anything that was made was made from Jesus. And without or apart from him, nothing was made that was made. Jesus was not only present at creation, but he was active in creation. Each individual thing Jesus created. So Jesus made the tree and Jesus made the flower. Jesus made the elephant and Jesus made the elephant bug. All right. Uh, All of the created things that had been created uh, were created by Jesus. Let me give you a few great scriptures to help back up this point. Colossians 1 is classic. You've got to know Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 18. Have it seared into your heart as a reference point from John 1, 1 and 1 through 3, okay? Here's what it says. Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn or 
And the, and the Jehovah's Witnesses will say, ah, he's the firstborn of all creation. So there was a beginning of him, right? But what firstborn speaks of here is not how you might think of it. Uh, that, oh, he was born. You're right. The Bethlehem manger. So I guess he was created. No, what that speaks of is first ranked. He's like the firstborn son. Out of all creation, he's ranking over it. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Okay, so everything that's been created, think of it in heaven, think of it on earth. Stuff you can see, stuff you can't see, atoms and and molecules, uh, even thrones and dominions or principalities and powers. All things were created through him, through Jesus, and for Jesus. The book of Colossians is about Jesus having the preeminence that he is shown to be the best out of everything and and over everything and in control of everything. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have that preeminence. Okay, so Colossians 1, 15 through 18, there's a lot. That's a whole other Bible study we can get into, pulling it apart word for word, verse by verse. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. So um, that's Jesus. Speaking of Jesus there in Psalm 33, his breath made the world. He made the angels. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and 2 speak of that Jesus is God. He's Better than the angels, number one, chapter one, because he created the angels. And uh, number two, because um, he is worshipped by the angels, okay? Uh, Ephesians chapter three, if you look at the end of verse eight, it's speaking of the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Okay, so it's been said that Jesus is this agent of creation in the process of creation. Uh, and again, Hebrews 1, 2, the very last phrase says uh, that Jesus, it's through him also he made the worlds. Okay, so let me read that. Has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Okay, so the evangelist makes it plain that the word of God which he speaks is also the wisdom of Proverbs eight twenty two through 30, the wisdom who created the world, Jesus is the word and he's the wisdom. We don't have time today to read Proverbs 8, 22 through 30, but it's this incredible poem of wisdom creating the world. And that is Jesus. Um, in Revelation three fourteen, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans writes, these things says the amen. So Jesus is writing to the Laodiceans. And he calls himself the Amen, which may be a variant of the Hebrew word, which means the master workman. And that Proverbs chapter 8 speaks of him being that master craftsman 
who designed the world. The New English Bible states this verse, no single thing was created without him. All that came to be was a life was alive in his life. Alistair Begg writes, this is not theological lumber. This is not postgraduate theology for eggheads, which is what I feel like as I'm teaching this. This is the heart of historic Christianity. And that which sets this aside is not Christianity at all. Martin Goldsmith says, if we deny the deity of Christ as the second person of the Trinity, his incarnation, his divine human person, his redeeming work on the cross, his resurrection and ascension, then we are no longer talking of the truth revealed in the Bible, nor in the faith of the church throughout Christian history. However, we may call our new religion concoction Christianity. It actually has little relationship to the Christian faith. We have, in fact, invented a new religion which has changed or denied every major point in the Christian faith. And Begg goes on to say, and that's where Christianity is in large measure in contemporary America. They've either changed or denied central elements of the Christian faith. And if you press them, they do not believe in the virgin birth. They do not believe in the inerrant, infallible word of God. They do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. They do not believe in the truth of God incarnate. Okay, So we have in this day people who have watered down the word of God enough that they don't have to uh, plant their feet in the concrete of the word of God and champion such theological ideas that the early church have understood to be true, including that of the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Um, now, for the sake of time, I want to go through verse 4. I want to go through verse 5. Because what we're going into is the reason why Jesus came. But I don't have time today to get into that. Now, we will get into it later. Summarized in just two words. Jesus came to be light. And Jesus came to be life. It's a wonderful thing that we're going to see of Jesus. But what I want to look at as it is Mother's Day. Is I want to go down to verse 12 and 13 and this is something that we're going to reference quite a bit in the gospel of john and it says this and, and so keeping in mind all that we've learned so far that in the beginning was the word the ultimate reason um that reason is personified uh it's personification here in the beginning was him and he was with god and he was God. He was in the beginning with God. And he created all things. Okay, And so what we have is some deep, deep doctrine. We have some deep, deep truths that are preached in the Bible, that have been preached by the church for thousands of years. And I'm not saying they're easy truths. 
I'm not saying it's something that I expect you to just be able to wrap your head around on a Sunday morning here in this hour that we've had going through it. It can be tough, um, but this is known to be historic Christianity. And as you read the word, as you're a student of the word, it's not outside of comprehension. It's something that you can actually easily see throughout the law, the Torah, the prophets, the historical books, the major prophets, the minor prophets, the four gospels, the New Testament letters, um, the pastoral epistles, and the book of Revelation, a book of prophecy. Every single one of these categories and all of these books affirm this doctrinal truth that Jesus always was. Jesus is God. And God became flesh and dwelt among us, as verse 14 is going to say later. He dwelt among us so that he could live a perfect life that we could never live in our own strength. That he could die a sacrificial death that is a substitution so that he could atone for the sins of the world. And only God could give such a pure, spotless sacrifice because he is pure and perfect and lived a perfect life. And only God in his purity can not stay dead, but rise from the dead in victory and purchase our victory as well. And all of this is deep doctrinal truth that John desires us to believe. He desires us to receive. He desires us to respond to this truth with faith. You got to have faith, faith, faith. I believe, I believe, I believe in the words of donkey. Believe in Jesus as the son of God who came, lived among his creation, lived a perfect life among his sinful creation, died a death at the hands of his creation. But in that death, purchased the redemption price, paid the redemption price with his precious blood so that he could free his creation from the bondage of sin and death. And verse 12 of our text today, John chapter 1 says, as many as receive that, like a child receives a Christmas gift, as many that would take that and believe it, Jesus, I believe that you always have been. I believe that you created it's, it's stretching my brain. It hurts. I'm not saying I totally get it, Lord, but I believe that you are God, that you created me, that you created the world. And as anyone that would believe and receive him, it says to them, he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. And I've had people in Christian theological circles say, don't tell me to believe in Jesus. Don't tell me to receive Jesus. I am too depraved to make such a decision for Christ. And I think that is paramountly unbiblical and a twisting of Scripture. I think we have verses like this one given to us. This idea of receiving Jesus is biblically valid. It is what theologians call man's responsibility. And you have a responsibility after having been given these truths of Jesus today. You have a responsibility to receive Jesus or reject Jesus. 
And to those who would receive him, the end of verse 12 says, those are those that believe in him. Those are those that trust in who he is. Those are those who rest in his name. They think it to be true, and they entrust themselves to the person of Jesus, to the reputation and the authority and the cause of Jesus. It says that those, those who receive, those who believe, have the right. It's been given to them. You've been given the right, just like we as the United States Americans have rights. These are rights that have been given to us. We're given the right to become children of God. The word children, Tenny says, is parallel to a Scottish word, bairns. I wish I could say it like a Scotman. Uh, And it speaks of born ones. And it emphasizes vital origin and is used as a term of endearment. Believers and receivers are God's little ones. And they are related to him by birth. Now, I wanted to get to this because it's a little bit of a Mother's Day message for us, right? It's speaking of birth, all right? We're speaking of adoption. And it says, verse 13, that we were born, not of blood, or it's actually bloods in the plural. It's curious, but what it means is it kind of gets into this action of both parents really trying to have a baby, just a lot of man's effort. And we were not born into God's family through a lot of man's effort, okay? Um, it, it's not because of our blood. It's not because of our racial or our ethnic background. But we are born again by God, the end of our verse says. It's not by our racial or ethnic backgrounds. It also says it's not by the will of our flesh, some desire of our human nature or our sincerity even. That's not what makes us born afresh and born into the family of God. Nor is it the will of man, verse 13 says. Because of our effort, or uh, it can be translated even because of the will of the husband really wanting to um, make a child or plan to have a child. But rather, it's, it's sovereign in origin. And so this is where we have this incredible tension of two truths, both being true, that on the man's responsibility side, man must receive or reject who Jesus is. That's a responsibility on man's side. And on the other side of the tension and the mystery is God's sovereignty, who is over all of it. He is the beginning, all right? Nothing would have been if it weren't for God in the first place. He is the, uh, he is the cause. He is the agent of salvation, He is the pursuer. He enables people to believe, but he doesn't believe for them. He doesn't receive for them. He makes the way available, and then that man and woman, you even who are listening, must receive and believe or reject him. We see that it is of God that brings about this birth. And so on this Mother's Day, And you can go ahead and set your things aside where you're at. We're closing down. I have my stopwatch. It's been an hour and six minutes. That's one of the longest sermons. Happy Mother's Day. That was just for you. Um, On this Mother's Day, perhaps today would be a day where you would have a birth. If you're listening today and you have never 
trusted in Jesus, rested in Jesus, you've never received Jesus or believed in Jesus in a way that all of who you are puts your trust in Jesus. Man, today is the day. Today is the day of salvation. Mother's Day 2020 via a live stream service. It's in John that we have the story of Nicodemus where he came to Jesus at night and he says, Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, unless you receive Jesus, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is confused by that. He says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And I would ask you today, have you been born again? You were born a first time. That's why we're celebrating Mother's Day today. You were born of water. You were born in the flesh. But have you been given a new heart since you've trusted in Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you been given a new mind? Have you been given a new will in Jesus by the Spirit? Today can be the day of salvation for you. Today can be a whole separate kind of Mother's Day. It can be a whole separate day of birth, the day of your new birth. And if you desire that, will you pray with me right now before we, final, uh, we close with a final song? On this Mother's Day, you can pray to be born again. Just cry out to the Lord from your heart and say, Lord Jesus, today I have heard some deep things, some things that maybe cause my brain to ache a little bit. But I am hearing from the Gospel of John that since before the foundations of the world, Jesus, you were there with the Father. You were there with the Spirit. You had great intentionality as an agent of creation. You were a part of all of this creation like a master craftsman. And when you created, you knew that I would be coming down the pike, Lord. When you created, you knew that we would be messing this whole thing up through our sin. But you, my creator, pursued me and initiated relationship with me. You came and you lived a life of perfection and sinlessness that I could never live. You died the death that I deserved to die because of my sin. So that you could purchase me off the slavery auction block of sin and death. You can redeem me from my sins. And Lord, today I want you to do that. I want that to be said of my life and my soul that I have believed in Jesus. I have received Jesus. Because of that, because of God's grace and his purpose and the gospel from before the world was created, I have the right to be called the son of God or the daughter of God, the part of the family of God. This new birth is something that brings a change to my life. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give me a new mind, give me a new heart. Give me a new will that delights in knowing you and following you and obeying you. Let me be born again today. Celebrate this Mother's Day in a whole new way. And Lord, we do pray as Christians today, Lord, that 
you would take our hearts and let us live lives that reflect the deep truths of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Let the implications of the deity of Jesus change how we live for your glory and fame. Will you guys close and sing in this song with me today? Let's worship.